Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Everybody doing well? Good, good. Kiddos, you guys are dismissed into um, Kids Church. And if you're not a child, go ahead and grab your Bible. Go with me to Luke chapter 24. Is where we're going to camp out, Luke 24. Uh, I do need to make one quick apology. Uh, I am a little flimmy. Is that okay to say? Um, so I'm going to be drinking some water and trying to keep this thing down. I might pop a Ricola in a second uh, just to let this like marinate down. So if you see something bulging out of my lip, it's not Copenhagen. It's a Ricola. I'm just putting it right there so I can still preach. Well, are we good with that? All right. So Luke 24, we are now in, if you don't know what Copenhagen is, God bless you. I don't know how you live in North Georgia and don't know that. Um, <clears throat> we're in week six of our Apostles' Creed series, so week six, and we say this over and over and over again. We're not here to preach the Apostles' Creed, even though that's what it seems like we're doing, uh, but more, more than what we're trying to just preach through the Creed, we're trying to preach the Bible and understand how the Creed came to these conclusions. And so we see all throughout church history that the Creed has been used for, for two primary reasons. One to correct error. So when they were reciting the creed, um, the canonization of scripture was not yet complete uh, because most scholars would say first, second century. And, and so as they're reciting this, this is used to correct error, to teach doctrine, to understand what we believe as uh, Christians. And the other is the massive tool, uh, which is spiritual formation of the people of God. So how are the people formed? How do we grow together and bond uh, over who the gospel is, who Christ is, what the grand narrative of Scripture is? And and so that's been the motivation for us here, is those two primary factors. One, to correct error, because we're not quite sure. All of us have different backgrounds, uh, different understandings of different doctrines. And so, so this is an easy way for us to say, we believe all of this. And then moving into this helps form the people of God. Uh, another way to say it is it really helps us to be confident in what we say that we believe. And confidence is such a massive thing uh, for us to walk in as believers. And, and, and it really hit me this week. So we, we snuck away for a couple days. Uh, we went to our favorite uh, bed and breakfast. Actually, the only bed and breakfast I'll go to because those things just creep me out. But the people that run this are believers. Any B&B fans here? There's just, all right, one, Janice. You're, you're tough. That's okay. They just make me nervous because I don't know who's going to come in in the middle. And I know the hotels are the same thing, but this is just creepy. Anyways, so we were there for this weekend. Uh, we try to sneak away every year for Bree's birthday, which is tomorrow. Happy birthday, Bree. Uh, it's also Julia Lancaster's, right? Is your birthday tomorrow? Happy birthday. It's also Megan Partrick's tomorrow. Happy birthday. It's also Grant Partrick's, to, or Grant, not Partrick, Grant Felty's today. Happy birthday. Anybody other birthdays you want to shout out? I'll give you just blessings. We good? Only if you give extra offerings. So all of you are blessed if you give. So um, long story short, we snuck away. Every year I asked Marie, hey, what do you want for your birthday? And she goes, I don't know. Just get me away from the kids. I don't know what that's about, but that's what we do. Um, so and, and every time we get in this kind of setting, this always happens. We were sitting on the porch yesterday talking to this sweet lady who was from Norway, and evidently in Norway they don't have property boundaries, so you can tent in anyone's, or set up a tent in anyone's front yard. I don't like that at all. Uh, I would shoot a lot of people. But anyways, as we're talking, uh, the, the, the conversation always turns to, so what do you do for a living? And just for me, it's just, so I instantly looked at Bree, like, hey, you answer that. And Bree's like, I do nothing. I stay home with the kids. Gabe, what do you do for a living? So it's just that awkward, like, well, like, I'm a pastor. Because here's why it's awkward. 
The moment I say I'm a pastor, this is what happens when I meet strangers. You instantly see them run through their entire conversation with me in their mind. What did I say? What did I say? What did I say? What did I say? Uh, and, and in this particular conversation, she didn't say much. The husband said some really bizarre, strange things that he should repent from, but she was fine. And then it just gets awkward, right? Like, they were obviously not religious at any stake, and so it was like, well... We got to be going now because you confessed that you were a pastor. And on the way home, I was just thinking this text, thinking that situation, and just like, why am I not more confident in the fact like I am, sure, put pastor over here, but believer, like why am I not just more confident in the fact anywhere I go that I believe in Christ, Christ crucified? Right? I mean, that's just a public proclamation because we're all confident in different things, right? I mean, we are confident in politics. We talk about politics. We're confident in what we do for a living. We all the time talk about that. We're confident in our hobbies. We all the time talk about that. We're confident of what we did in high school varsity baseball because you always talk about it, right? We're confident in those things in the past, but are we actually confident in the finished work of Christ on the cross, And so what I want us to do this morning is look at this truth that we're going to see from the creed, but primarily through the scripture, and really look at how confident are we in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And an easy way for us to tell that is how often it comes out, how often we want to share it with one another, how often we feel just the confidence that comes with, but I I am a son of God, Christ has purchased my all the sin, he's atoned all that I ever need I'm good, and I can talk about that, and I can boast in that, and I can brag in that, because it's nothing I'm doing. It's all what Christ has done for us. But confidence for us today is more over on self-confidence. You can do it. You've got what it takes. Rah, rah, let's go. Throw up. That's gross. That's not the confidence that we have in Christ. We're going to boast all the more in His ability, not in ours, and that's what I want us to see this morning. So, Uh, We're going to read through the creed together, and here's what we're highlighting in on. He descended to hell, which I'm sure that's why most of y'all are here, because you want to hear me preach on how he descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. So so those are the two lines that we're going to highlight, we're going to spend the most time on in in an effort to build our confidence in who Christ is. So uh, I think it's going to be, it already is, let's go. Uh, Sorry. If you haven't been here before, we'll read this together. We're not going to stand because this is not higher or more authoritative than Scripture. Uh, we're just reading this together as church history has done for a really long time. You ready? I believe in God the Father.
uh, Luke chapter 24, and we see here we're in week four of uh, a mini-series of Christology within the greater work of the Apostles' Creed. So uh, for the last four weeks and for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking primarily at what the Creed says about the person and work of Christ. And and I've said this the last couple weeks, uh, the the two main hopes within this mini-series of the greater series of the Apostles' Creed is one, so that we'd really understand who Christ is, that within culture today, Jesus Christ is just kind of a junk drawer for all these different theologies and theories and ideas, so we can really come to a deeper understanding of who Christ is, so that it would lead us to true worship, true authentic worship of who Jesus Christ is. So, Luke 24, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Luke 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood before them in dazzling apparel. And they were frightened and bound their faces to the grounds. The men, excuse me, to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Verse 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of, Jesus, or mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping in and looking. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went, in, went home marveling at what had happened. So let's pray together over this word. Father, thank you that we can publicly get together in a public facility, read your scriptures, study your scriptures uh, for the edification of our souls. Now, Father, would we leave this space this morning with a deeper understanding of who you are, Jesus? And would that allow us to worship you rightly? Would we repent from sin? Would we uh, change our course of action so that uh, our lives would be Christ-centric, would be centered around you, your word, your finished work on the cross, your resurrection from the dead, and now seated at the right hand of the Father? So, Father, would you uh, speak to us this morning? Would your word uh, just come to life as we study it and understand you deeper? It's your name we pray. Amen. Now, we, we kind of understand the story, if you have a church background, typically uh, this would have been read and preached over Easter, right? So Jesus is dead, he's been buried, he's in the tomb. Um, Sabbath happens on Saturday, because that's before the switch happened. So Sabbath is on Saturday. First thing Sunday morning under Levitical law was the first time the ladies could go and actually uh, see the body, prepare the body. Uh, and so they're up. I mean, the crack of dawn, they're going, they've walked down there, and what do they get to? I mean, they get to an empty tomb. They don't believe it. Uh, But the question that we really want to hone in on here is in verse 5, why do you seek the living among the dead? I mean, just a marvelous question for us to read, consider, and put ourselves in the shoes of these ladies who, who have stumbled up on this. They're obviously in grief. They're obviously in mourning. And, and this angel, why, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Why are you looking for hope within a graveyard? Why are you looking for your future where there is no future? Why are you looking for living things among dead things? What are you doing here? 
And they went on to say, but because you know better. Ladies, you know what Jesus said. You know what was going to happen. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And with this piercing question, it cuts to the heart in multiple ways. First, it cuts to the heart in their forgetfulness of the past. Oh my gosh, can't we agree with that? I mean, how often we go to the woe is me of life when Jesus just did something miraculous in our life a week ago. We forget about it. When Jesus just did the impossible in us and how quickly we forget about that and go into the woe is me kind of life. So, so the forgetfulness of past, but also their pain in the moment. So the pain in the moment led them to the graveyard and forgot all that God had promised them through Christ. In the same way, the pain in our moments just leaves us a little shell-shocked, not knowing where to look for hope. And lastly, they see the lack of hope for the future. That this question, why do you look for the living among the dead, showed that they had no hope for the future. That Jesus was dead, he was buried, and they didn't know what to do. But the angels continue, verse 8, and they remembered his words. In returning from the tomb, they told all the things to the eleven and to the rest. Now you would think, Jesus is dead, he's told them, hey, this has to happen to me, they're going to put me in the ground for three days, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale, this is what's going to happen to me, believe me, trust me, I'm going to come back, don't fret this. Within three days, they have forgotten all of that. So then when these women run back to tell the disciples all that just happened, here's their response, that is an idle tale, which in the NASB would say is nonsense. Is nonsense. So when the disciples hear the news that Jesus is not there, that he has been raised like he said he would, they respond back with, that's just nonsense, ladies. Get out of here. That's ridiculous. There's no way that that's possible. And they did not believe. Again, I think NASB translates this a little better. They would not believe. They would not allow themselves to believe what these women had just told them, that Jesus is alive. They would not let themselves believe that, except for Peter, except for Peter. Now, I want to hearken to Peter in a little bit more in, uh, towards the end of the sermon, but Peter hops up and runs. And we're going to flip a lot today, so just bear with me. Go to John chapter 20, because here's how John records this part of the story. And I think it's just, one, I think this is comical, and we'll see why in a second. But, but two, there is a glimmer of hope for them. There is some confidence in Christ Jesus that maybe he actually did do what he said he was going to do. John chapter 20, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Now, just some context here. John refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. John's a humble guy, right? That's who he refers to himself to. And I just want you to pick up a little bit of John's humility as we're reading through this story because it cracks me up. John chapter 20, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, he's talking about himself there, and said to them, they have taken, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. So, so much confidence, anticipation that they were running to the tomb together. Now, this is my favorite part of this. And they were going to the tomb, but as they were running together, the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I mean, just a little jab, like, but I won the race to the tomb. I just love that. 
And stooping in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, because you remember, John is faster, so Simon Peter came second. Following him and went into the tomb, he saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciples who reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. All right, so here's the massive part. When women came back, John, Simon Peter take off running as fast as they can to figure out what just happened. And we see how John's narrative ends. They went in and saw and believed. So what instilled the confidence in Simon, in Simon Peter and John that Christ had raised himself from the dead, that he saw with his own eye and he believed? This is what confidence is. Confidence in the Latin confide uh, with faith, right? So confidence is having this idea of faith. Do they have faith that this happened? Why? Because they saw it. How much faith is required when you see something? Not much. And so as we've been preaching through the book of Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews keeps hounding on the fact that faith, true confidence, confide with faith, is not the fact that we see it, it's the fact that we don't see it. That is what true faith looks like. And we see this at the end of this story with John, uh, John 20, 29, Jesus tells them, have you believed because you have seen me? But blessed are those who have not seen and yet Believed, And we even see Hebrews 11.1, 1, the definition of faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. So we're talking about confidence with faith in the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We have to understand that we don't have to see it with our own eyes to have faith, to have confidence that this is true. And this is what it means for us to have confidence. So, so if I could summarize this morning in just one big thought, it's this. If Christ had not been raised, our life, faith, and future is meaningless. If Christ had not been raised, our life, our faith, and our future is meaningless. If Christ had been raised, we can be confident that our sins are forgiven, we have peace for our future, and we have a hope for the world. So this is the argument that I'm trying to make based on Scripture. And, and I really wish, time allowed, we could just spend the entire morning in 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll be there in a minute because Paul goes all through this argument. But what does it look like for us to have confidence in the fact that Jesus has raised from the dead? And this is where the creed is really hounding in on. So, so let's go back to the creed to see how the creed is teaching Scripture because the first thing that we see is that he descended to hell. Here we go. You ready? He descended to hell. Now, I just want to be frank. Can I just be frank for you? Uh, there's been so much argumentation around this that I just thought it would be best for this morning if we just skipped over it. All right, if we don't even talk about this, address this, uh, because it's just so controversial, it's not even worth it. All right? You okay with that? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You're like, no, I'm leaving right now. So, uh, but, but I, do, I do want to just throw one argument out here, okay? We're using the creed to teach the Bible, not teach the creed, right? So I'm going to hark on the majors of Scripture, not the opinion of man. Does that make sense? So I'm going to do my best to defend what these guys were talking about, uh, go through what hell actually means, and, and the purpose of it being in the creed. But I'm not setting out to defend men that wrote the Apostles' Creed. I'm trying to teach the Bible that inspired the Creed. Does that make sense? All right, so the first thing that we have to see here uh, is that the, the idea of hell being added into the Apostles' Creed really wasn't added until AD 390. 
Right, so in the earliest manuscripts of the creed, this line was not in it. And you can go all the way back to some guys that were not canonized writers, but were early church leaders. And as they're writing, you can go line for line in some of their writings to see, um, and I'll read some of them next week, to see how this part was inspired to be in the Apostles' Creed. But he descended to hell was not part of it. So the earliest manuscripts, it was not added until a guy named uh, Rufinus, Best guess. I mean, he's got a ridiculous name, so he added a ridiculous line, I guess. But um, he added, I'm just kidding, it's not a ridiculous line. But he added it within AD 390, and he did not mean that Jesus went to a place of eternal judgment. And here's what I'm, my argument for this time. He did not mean that Jesus went to a place of eternal judgment, but rather, Jesus went down into the earth and was buried. Christ, in his humanity, fully experienced death and judgment for our sin on our behalf. So this is what the author is getting at, right? So, so why did they add this line that he descended to hell? Well, first, we have to see that Jesus died. That, that Jesus died, died. And we're going to get into this in a minute because there's a lot of these myths going out there that Jesus didn't actually die. So for the Apostles' to, or the apostles Creed to include this line, one of the main motivations was to really show that Jesus died, died, died. Like, like dead, died, no pulse in the grave, where did dead men go? That's where Jesus went because Jesus died. Let's get rid of the myth that Jesus didn't actually die. Jesus died, died, dead, died, in the tomb, dead. That was one massive motivation for him including this. But, but we really need to be careful when we define the word hell, right? Because, I mean, we live in North Georgia. I have used, I haven't used, sometimes, I've seen used, uh, hell used as a pronoun, adjective, adverb, pronoun, verb, uh, every part of the sentence, hell has been used in North Georgia Redneck, right? I mean, how can this be thrown into any sentence at any time and it always fits? In the same way, we have to be really careful. What does hell mean? And here's, here's kind of the case that I'm going to work through, and this is where a lot of guys would agree. If we were to change this phrase in a very simple way, that Jesus went to the place of the dead, would this raise any feathers? Would this ruffle any feathers? That Jesus went, he died, he went to the place of the dead, he ascended and sets the right hand of the Father. Would that sound any strangeness? No, of course not. This is all that this passage or this line in the Creed is trying to get to, that Jesus went to the place of the dead. Here's what one commentator said. This short statement in the Creed reminds us that Jesus having truly died was in what both the Old Testament and the New Testament describe as the realm of the dead. The Hebrew word for the Old Testament is Sheol, and the Greek word from the New Testament is Hades. In both cases, this refers to a temporary realm of the dead awaiting the final judgment. So we have to be careful when we use this word hell uh, because you've got Sheol or this holding place of the dead, but you also have Gehenna, which is the place of eternal judgment, right? So when we think of hell, uh, we think of torment, uh, we think of separation from God forever, we think of uh, the lake of fire. I heard one, uh, Douglas Wilson said that we actually get most of our theology about hell, not from the Bible, but from far side cartoons, right? So whatever you're thinking of hell, like that's Gehenna, right? But what we're talking about when he descended into Sheol, when he descended into hell, this holding place for the dead in this part of redemption history, uh, this is what we're discussing. So the Apostles' Creed, nor does the Bible ever teach that Jesus went into hell, Gehenna, the, the place of eternal judgment forever. That's not where he went. He went into this holding place for 
the dead. And we see clearly this in Jesus' example in Luke 16. So flip with me. I told you we are going to be flipping. Um, look with me at Luke 16. I just want to read this so we can see this, so we can be clear on this, so that we can move on. But this is something that if we were going to recite this as a church, to recite the Apostles' Creed over and over and over again every single week, we would probably as elders change this line to either say Hades or to say the place of the dead because this is the original author's intent of this. It's just a holding place of the dead. So here's what we see this. And and all of this, just for you uh, nerds, this is the second temple Jewish idea. This is what we're working through and we're discussing. Luke 16, 22 through 26. Luke 16, 22 through 26. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Uh, Other translations, you might have heard Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and sent Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in the flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus, like in manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And beside all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and, and none may cross from there to us. So we see this idea of Sheol, we see this idea of hell, of being a holding place for the dead. And in this part of redemptive history, there's a massive chasm that goes through the middle of this. You have Abraham's bosom on one side, uh, and then you have the anguish and the torment on this side, awaiting Christ to come, but ultimately awaiting the final judgment at the end of time, right? So they're in this holding place, they can talk back and forth, but they can't go back and forth. Uh, Whatever they've done on earth, following after God. God following the law, trusting in Christ or not, that is what has landed them in these two different categories. But Christ comes. And so we see this idea of Christ on the cross, not an idea, a real truth. Christ is on the cross, uh, the thief next to him, he promises him, today you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me today in paradise. So how could Christ go to be tormented in hell, the real Gehenna, literal hell for three days, if this thief on the cross is supposed to be with him today? Or was they going to this shield idea, this holding place of the dead? But now we got to fast forward. Is that still a holding place for us? Is that happens to us when we die? Because Paul would tell us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we have to see that in, in the end of Revelation that there's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. So there still is a holding place for us with Christ until the final judgment happens. And those that are in the shield, the waiting for eternal torment, will be sent there forever. Forever. They won't be there for a certain time, and then their lives will be ended. They will be there forever, and we as the redeemed will be with Christ forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So what the creed is preaching here is, listen, there's a holding place for the dead, and that's where Jesus went because he was dead, dead. But I love this. This has just been an encouragement for me, talking about where we are in heaven by a commentator named Matthew Emerson. The presence of Jesus in paradise, in Abraham's bosom, changes his entire constitution. Rather than being a place where the dead await the coming of Israel's promised Messiah, the Christ is now in their midst. 
So you have these Old Testament saints that have been waiting in this Abraham's bosom, waiting in paradise for Christ, but now Christ is in their midst. First in the descent, he is present with them in human soul, and then after the ascension, he is present with them in the bodily. This change in paradise's constitution is mirrored in the New Testament by a change in the spatial description. The spatial description of paradise shifts from the underworld to the third heaven, not because it has been physically moved, but because the spiritual reality has changed. So now we're not in this holding ground. When we die, we are with Christ instantly. What good news for us. But it is only the reality because Christ died. He went to the place of the dead. Now, I know that there might be some questions in there. I want to move on for sake of time, but please come talk to me after. Uh, we can work through some of these things together, but, but I'm going to move on a little bit just so we can see the rest. Because the last thing we have to see, hell is what this means. It's a holding place for the dead. Jesus died, died, dead, died. But the last thing we have to see in Acts 2.22 is that death could not hold him. We see Peter in his bold proclamation say, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So not even death could conquer Jesus. Not even death could hold him down. It was impossible for him to be held by it. So Jesus broke out of this holding place of the dead, and by doing so, he showed, he revealed to the world that he, in fact, was God. So we see this, he descended into hell, into Hades, into this holding place of the dead. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Now, we just have to see here for a second that he rose again from the dead. Because every Easter, you'll see these things coming on History Channel. Uh, I could talk to Jesus was dead, dead, real dead. Because this is still an idea that he didn't actually die. Which secretly, I love this. Right, that the, that the non-believing world was still fretting over what actually happened to Jesus. 2,000 years later, they're still freaking out about it. We know the truth, but you go do what you need to do because it's going to prove you wrong in the end. And so here's some of the top theories just for us to know of. Uh, the first one, the stolen body theory. Have you all heard of this? He wasn't actually raised from the dead. Someone just stole his body. The second, and this is probably the most popular one, uh, this is the swoon theory. Have you all heard of this? Swoon theory? So that Jesus didn't actually die. He just kind of fainted, right? His heart rate was so faint that no one could find it, and they just assumed he was dead, right? So he had a day of suffering, a day of beating. They stabbed him through the lungs into into the heart. Blood and water spilt all over the ground. They took him down, but he wasn't actually dead. His, his blood pressure was just like almost nothing. You know, probably because you stabbed him in the heart, that kind of relieves blood pressure. Swoon theory. He didn't actually die. Just ridiculousness. The hallucination theory. I like this one. Uh, the, evidently, the disciples and the women of Jesus were so uh, grieving that they must have eaten some mushrooms and found that uh, Jesus didn't actually die. They just saw him because they were hallucinating. Mushrooms is a drug for you Baptist kids, just so you know. That's what happened. It's ridiculous. Mistaken identity theory. This theory is that someone else was crucified in the place of Jesus, either intentionally or unintentionally, and then everyone thought that it was actually Jesus on the cross. I mean, these are just ridiculous. The copy of a pagan myth theory. So they just that copy that they'd heard this story before. They just copied it and made it up. Uh, this one is a good one. Wrong tomb theory. That they just went to the wrong tomb. Oh, this was a joke. Like, oh, no, Jesus is one over, bro. Sorry. You missed it. 
the twin theory that Jesus, I'm sorry, these are just ridiculous, that Jesus had a tw- an identical twin that took place on, uh, that died for Jesus on the cross. Um, where's Bryson? You're a triplet. You think any of your brothers would just like, hey, bro, I got you. I'll go die on the cross for you. You, you can stay free. No, ridiculous. This one, y'all ready for this? The alien theory. The theory that Jesus was an alien and had advanced his abilities and technology. I'm not even going to read the rest of that. Ridiculous. Uh, the contradiction theory, the theory that disciples made mistakes when describing how many angels were at the tomb. Thus, we cannot trust anything else they said about it. One said one, one said two. Oh, your story's inaccurate. We can't trust the rest of what happened. Or maybe they just saw an angel and freaked out. Maybe that's the reality. Or the last one, the resurrection theory. Maybe we cannot prove it wrong because it's actually true. Maybe after 2,000 years, the culture needs to accept that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. That we can't find his bones, that there's been no theory that's holding any water because he actually was raised from the dead. And so with that being true, let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 real fast. Like I said, I, I would love just to spend all of our time in 1 Corinthians 15, and I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 15 on, uh, it, this afternoon because it answers, and, and just the way that Paul writes, he throws a lot of these questions back and forth. First Corinthians 15, we're going to pick it up in verse 3. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and the other twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then all the apostles, last of all, as to the untimely born, he also appeared to me. So this is first importance. This is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day he was raised. In the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, he goes through this idea of what happened, why we should believe it. And his biggest emphasis, and what I want us to see this morning, is that if Christ actually didn't raise himself from the dead, then we as Christians should be pitied the most. Then we as Christians should be pitied the most. And here's what he means. We see it verse, in verse 12 and 13. Now, if Christ proclaimed as raised from the dead, how could some of you said there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So if there's no resurrection of the dead, then we have no hope for us for the rest of eternity. We have no hope that we will become, uh, we'll have glorified bodies, that God will raise us from the dead for the new heavens and the new earth. If Christ's resurrection wasn't real, then our resurrection is not going to be real. Then our eternity is not real. Then what are we even doing here? If Christ was not raised from the dead, we have no hope for the future whatsoever. We're going to die, we're going to turn into worm dirt, and this is going to be it. This is such an atheistic view that we hear all the time, YOLO, live your best life now because if you don't, like, what what are you living for? There's nothing past this, you're going to turn into dirt, so do what you want now. And if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then let's join them in it. Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die because there's no future, there's no eternity, there's no hope. 
But if Christ has been raised from the dead, then we have the confidence that there is a future glory for us, that we are with Christ forever, and we can believe that. Second, Paul adds in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. In other words, our preaching and teaching is false and pointless. Paul's saying, if, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, you are wasting your time right now. I'm wasting my time right now. There's no point to be doing what we're doing right now, proclaiming the truth of God's word, that Christ is buried, dead, and raised on the third day. If that's not true, then, then we're all wasting our time. He continues in verse 17, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless. He continues in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Without the resurrection power of Christ, our sin has not been broken. Therefore, our death has not been changed. If we're still in our sins, and Romans is true, the wages of sin is death, then we're going to deserve death forever. We have no hope, no future glory, no eternity, nothing. Dead, death, worm dirt. That's who we are. And within, when we die, verse 18 and 19 says that we're lost forever. Then those who have followed asleep in Christ have also perished. But if we put our hope in Christ, his life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. So if we're putting all of our eggs in the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead and therefore our sins have been forgiven, therefore our eternity is set and we can have confidence in that, and that is wrong, then we've put our eggs in the wrong basket. We should be pitied among most because there's nothing else. This is worthless. All that we've committed our life to is worthless. Bree and I coming up here to start a church so we can have this. Sorry, we kind of messed you all up because this is all worthless. We should go do something else. Or you want to go run a bed and breakfast? Because this is, this is worthless. We could have awkward conversations on porches, and I don't have to say, I'm a pastor. And they go, oh, great, let's go. I mean, have we ever stopped to really sit and consider this? Especially those raised in the church. This has just been white noise for us. Yeah, Jesus is raised from the third day. We get that. We've always known that. But we have we stopped and considered the ramifications if that wasn't true that all of this is worthless. And if you're deconstructing your faith, I'm helping you right now. Because it would all be worthless. It would all be vanity. But the Gospels, every single one of them narrate the same story, the bodily resurrection of Christ. There's not a ton of overlap. Well, excuse me. There's a ton of overlap within the four Gospels. And so wherever there is, we must look at what is really overlapped, and this is one of them. Every single gospel narrative tells of the bodily resurrection because it matters. So here's the inverse of Paul's arguments in 1 Corinthians 15. Since there is a resurrection of the dead, then Jesus Christ has truly been raised. And if Christ has been raised, then our proclamation is powerful, and so is your faith. Then if Jesus has been raised, we found uh, our faith to be true about God, and we have testified truly that God has raised him from the dead. And if Christ has truly been raised from the dead, then so will we. And if Christ has truly been raised from the dead, then our sins have been forgiven. We have been justified. If Christ truly has been raised from the dead, then those who have perished before us are safe in Christ's arms. If those who have truly, we truly believe that Christ is raised from the dead, we have a reason to celebrate today and every day forever because the gospel is true. So if it is true, then we have reasons to celebrate. Stephen Um puts it this way. The resurrection narrative tells a story with a beautiful, happy ending. 
The end of redemptive history is God wins. And those who are in union with Christ win all along with him. He will renew the entire world to make it the way it's supposed to be and undo it with all its shortcomings. Death will not ultimately have the victory because of what Jesus Christ has done. It is not possible that we could ever fall or consider ourselves as losers because Jesus Christ lost everything for us. We can't ultimately lose anything. That is the confidence that we have that because Christ willingly laid down everything and defeated sin and death forever, we can't lose anything that matters. That is what true confidence has. And so briefly as we end, I told you we were going to come back to Peter. Because Peter is my boy, right? I just love Peter. Peter, I mean, the personality types, I have that ready, aim, fire, kind of like we'll build the airplane in the air that was my boy Peter, right? Peter just had that personality, had a little bit of fire in his belly. I mean, Peter would just do dumb stuff like me yesterday, true confession, coming home with my wife from this romantic getaway. Um, we got into this traffic altercation. I started uh, talking loudly to the person that we were. It actually turned out to be a game warden, so I could have got arrested, but I didn't because we left. And uh, Then I wanted to say, like, hey, I know where this guy's going. Should I pull in and have another conversation? And he's like, yeah, great. I want you to be in jail on my birthday. Why don't you do that? That'd be great. That's Peter, right? Peter's just like, bro, what are you doing, right? This is my boy Peter. And so we have to look at three categories, and Peter, but all the disciples. Peter before Christ was dead. Then we have to look at Peter when Christ was in the tomb. And then we have to look at Peter's life after, because we'll see a stunning difference in the life and the confidence of Peter pre, during, post the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's two main events I want us to see before Jesus died. First, we have Peter, James, and John go with him. So all the disciples go up just hours before the arrest, the betrayal, the court cases, and the death of Jesus. They all go with him to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, right? And then he takes Peter, James, and John, and leaves the other ones there, takes Peter, James, and John a little closer, and then puts them, hey, stay awake with me, please. My soul is at anguish. Stay here, pray. I'm going to go a little farther. Jesus prays. This is the narrative where he sweats blood. If there's any way this could not happen to me, God, let it. If not, your will be done. Comes back. I mean, I just have to believe this is within earshot, right? I mean, this, this is close. This isn't where the other disciples were. Peter, James, and John were right there close to Jesus. And when they come back, where does Jesus find them? Asleep. Asleep. So in the deepest, darkest moment of Jesus' life, my boy Peter has no confidence in what's happening right now, and he just falls asleep. He's like, no, I'm, bro, I'm tired. And right before this, I mean, you would think Peter's adrenaline would be on, because right before this, what happens? Jesus says, hey, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. No, that's never going to happen. So you, you would think Peter's got his mind thinking, like, all right, Jesus said I'm going to deny him. Uh, let's go pray. He picked me, Pete, me, James, and John to go pray with him up here. So, so let me go pray. I'm going to stay awake because I do not want to deny Jesus. But he falls asleep. And then they come to arrest him. This is this awkward moment of the arrest taking place. And what does my boy Peter do? Just pulls out a sword and cuts off the guard's ear. Right? Like just, what are you doing, Peter? Has no framework for what's happening. He's going to deny him three times just in a couple hours. Cuts the guard's ear off. Falls asleep. Peter, pre the death of Jesus, was just a buffoon. Can we just be honest? It was just missing the mark constantly. Now, this is the same Peter 
that, that Jesus proclaimed uh, that, man, like, this is how I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it because of your word, because of what Peter confessed, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter did get that one right. In every other situation, Peter messed up. So this is Peter before the death of Jesus. Now, what about Peter in the death of Jesus? We see that he runs, which is great, but what happens right before that? Well, John 20 tells us, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews. So Jesus is about to show up on the scene, show the resurrected body, and where are all the disciples? They're locked up in a room because they're afraid of the Jews. So buffoon before Jesus died, after the death of Jesus, just cowards. Just cowarding down. I don't want to die like Jesus did. I'm just going to stay in here. Let's lock the doors. Turn off the lights. Well, there's no lights. Blow off the candles. Don't let anyone know that we're here. Peter, before the death, buffoon. Peter, during the death, a coward. But what about Peter post-resurrection? What happens when Peter runs to the tomb and sees the garments folded up? What happens when he sees that he's not here? What happens when Jesus, his resurrected body, shows up to the apostles? What happens when Thomas gets to touch the hands and the feet of Jesus to see that it's true? What happens? Well, Acts is a marvelous display of what happens. So here's Peter, the denier, the buffoon in Acts 2, boldly preaching the gospel, Acts 2.38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jump down to verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day 3,000 souls. 3,000 men is how biblically that would have been counted. So six to 7,000 souls were added. Peter, the same Peter, that cuts an ear off a guy for not understanding what's happening, that falls asleep with Jesus, is a buffoon that, that locks himself into a room because he's afraid of the Jews, boldly preaches, and 3,000 souls come to faith that day. But this isn't it. This creates such a ruckus that in Acts 4, they're called into the Sadducees. They're called into this court system to try to get them to stop talking about the goodness of Jesus. In Acts 4, verse 8 then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, came to them and said, Rulers of the people and elders, if we were to be examined today concerning, concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means has this man been, man been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing well before you. By the resurrection power, by who God is and what he accomplished through Jesus Christ, that power is what just raised this man to be healed. It's that power. The resurrection power of Christ is what gives Peter this confidence to stand before the Sadducees that just had Jesus killed not that long ago and say, bro, you can't touch me. Because Christ had been raised from the dead. I'm not afraid of you anymore. I'm not staying how I was when Christ was dead. We didn't know what was going to happen. Locked up in a door so that you couldn't get to me. I'm right here telling you the same Jesus you crucified just healed this guy. What are you going to do? Nothing. That's what you're going to do. He was so bold. He had so much confidence that he didn't even care. So what happened to Peter other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And you can say, oh, no, that's just Peter. Uh, okay. Andrew was crucified. These are all the 12 disciples minus Judas. 
Andrew was crucified. James, the brother of John, was executed by a sword by Herod in Acts 12. John was the only one to die of natural causes, but that doesn't mean that people didn't try to boil him alive. So John wasn't just coasting by, right? They tried to, couldn't do it. Philip, there are different sources here, but he was either stoned, beheaded, or crucified upside down. Either way, he was a martyr for the sake of Christ. Um, Bartholomew, he was flayed and then beheaded. Now, some others say that he was just crucified, but this story comes up a lot, that he was flayed and then beheaded. You guys understand what flayed is? For the sake of Christ, because of the resurrection of Christ, he was flayed and then beheaded. Doubting Thomas, right? The one that doubted was stabbed with spears. Matthew was either burned, stoned, stabbed, or beheaded. None of those are great. James the Just, the stepbrother of Jesus, was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple where he was preaching Christ and Christ crucified. That didn't kill him, so they had to get fuller's clubs and stoned him to death. Jude, it's unclear, but he was appeared that he was shot to death by arrows. Simon the Zealot was sawn in two, but Judas Iscariot died by a hanging, and the guy that replaced Judas Iscariot, Matthias, uh, was not part of the original 12, but even he was stoned to death. So what do you do with the fact that these 12 bumbling idiots who saw the power of Christ raised from the dead all turned into warriors for Christ? Every single one of them suffered immeasurably more than any of us could ever imagine for the sake of Christ being raised from the dead. The resurrection is real, and it matters. We cannot look at church history and look at these men, these martyrs for the sake of the gospel, and say the resurrection doesn't matter. So the better question is, where are we? Where are we in this spot of the story? Are we the ones like the 12 disciples? Are we a little buffoonish in our attitude? That we spend a lot of time with Jesus? That we enjoy Jesus? We enjoy being around Jesus? We enjoy watching what he does? We worship him for who he is? But we're not actually willing to lay down our lives for Jesus. We're pre-death Jesus. We're about that Jesus. He does some cool stuff and a lot of people like him. That's the Jesus we like. Or for a lot of us, we've just been asking question after question after question, and Jesus is just dead. He's just not real. We're just not doing anything with our faith. We're hauled up behind the doors, locked, don't come in, we don't want to talk about it. We're just hiding away. But then some of us are in the scope of the disciples. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. I have full confidence in him. I can do none other than to preach the goodness of Jesus Christ. I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I can't get over the fact that because Jesus was raised from the dead, that my sins have been forgiven. I can't get over the fact that this is actually true. This actually happened. That's my king. That's Jesus. That's my boy. Look at what he accomplished through raising from the dead. Man, I've been set free from everything. I'm not going to live in sin. I'm not going to live in regret. I'm not going to live thinking that I can find my own hope, my own peace, my own happiness. All of this is wrapped up in the perfect, complete sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Where are we in these three categories? Because we have to answer the question. We have to wrestle with this idea. Is Jesus just a good guy? We enjoy following him. We enjoy being around him. We enjoy the things of Jesus. Are we locked behind doors thinking that Jesus is dead? He's not real. He's not here. Or do we believe in the resurrecting power of King Jesus? We're with him. We have full confidence with faith. We're boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Because if Christ has not been raised, our life, faith, and future is meaningless. But if Christ has been raised, we can be confident in this, that our sins can be forgiven, that we have a peace for our future, and we have a hope for the world. We have a message of reconciliation, that Christ has defeated sin and defeated death, and that invitation to follow him is here. The invitation for your sins to be forgiven is here. And so this is a perfect question for us to wrestle with as we enter into a time of communion. What do we believe about the resurrection of King Jesus? Is it instilling confidence in us, or are we just playing the game? Because if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then what we're about to do is worthless. We might as well throw up shop. Might as well dump out the communion. Don't even take it. If you want to still give, sure, just get out of here. But if not, then we take communion, remembering the mighty work of Christ on the cross, his death, and resurrection. We sing like we mean it because we get to celebrate. We enjoy life forever because what Christ has accomplished for us. If the resurrection is real, we have confidence. We join the sake of the apostles. We join the sake of our early forefathers, and we boldly proclaim the gospel wherever we go because we should be dead. We should be in our sins. We should be worm dirt. But because Christ's resurrection, we are not. We are forever healed of sin, and one day we'll be with him forever. And that we get to rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of this. Jesus, that you didn't pretend that you physically came and walked this earth. And although you were tempted in every regard, you lived a sinless, perfect life. And even though you didn't deserve it, you went to the cross, bearing our sins for us. And not only that, you were dead. There's no swoon theory or mistaken identity or any of those other nonsense theories. Father, you were dead. There was no blood flowing. There was no heartbeat. You descended into the place of the dead. But death could not hold you. You were raised from that. You defeated death. You came back to life. And the ramifications of that are massive. Because if you wouldn't have, our faith would be futile. We would have no hope for a future. We would have no plans. So we would be left to our own vices. But because of what you accomplished by defeating death, and, and as we'll see next week, ascending to the right hand of the Father, it means our sins can actually be forgiven. It means that we don't have to figure this out on our own. It means that there actually is a future glory for us. It means that you go before us in every single sense of that word. Not only in eternity, but tomorrow. But today, in every meeting, in every conversation, in every room that we walk into, you go before us in all of that. We can have full confidence in everything that you promised because you defeated death. So this morning as we partake in communion, would we ask ourselves, do we live, really live in light of the true resurrection of Jesus Christ?
Do we have a full confidence? Does this change the way that we live every single day? That if Christ has defeated death, what does this mean for me today? Are we still walking around with Jesus, but not really affected by the resurrection? Are we still hiding out, not believing any of this to be true? Or are we walking boldly in the truth and the confidence that only comes through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ? And so for those of us in this room that are baptized believers, we've been baptized after our conversion, this is a time for us to go take communion, to go remember all that Christ has done, but not only in his death, but in his resurrection. And for those that are in this room that aren't yet believers, man, there will be elders in the back. We'd love to talk to you, to pray with you, to discuss this. Because you have a hope. His name is Jesus. You have a future. It's with King Jesus. That your sins can be forgiven. Those sins can be defeated. And you can spend eternity with Him because of the resurrection that has taken place. So where are we this morning in the confidence Confide with faith of the resurrection of King Jesus. This is not just another story, but this is all we have as Christians. So I'm going to leave us in this moment of prayer, of uh, thinking, meditating on that question. And when you're ready, baptism will be, excuse me, communion will be open in the back. You can go take the bread that represents his body, dip it in the juice that represents his blood, that his blood spilt for you, his body that was broken for you. And then we can celebrate because that body that was broken was resurrected on that third day. That blood that was spilt was resurrected on that third day. And all the promises of God came true in that one moment. So Father, thank you, thank you, Thank you. Whenever you're ready, communion will be open, and then we can celebrate through worship.